It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hey everyone, welcome to Cadillac on Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And tonight, as we come on the air nearing the end of the month of September, we hopefully have some promising progress made in the and where our fight against COVID-19 at least we're starting to see a little bit of uh, relief in our area hospitals but I know the case rates continue to be very high much higher than I know public health officials would like but uh, as we have done many days uh, many weeks over the past 18 months uh, we're here to get you the very latest on where things stand in our community. And we're happy to begin with Dr. Amy Person, who is the health officer for Benton and Franklin Counties. And Dr. Person, maybe first of all, just give us a brief overview of where things stand this evening. Absolutely, Jim. Uh, so we still see very high case rates at Benton County, 932 cases per 100,000. Um, over the last 14 days in Franklin County, it's 1,146. Uh, the good news is that that level does seem to be um, steadying out, so we're not seeing the continued day-after-day increase we were seeing in previous weeks. So we may have been plateauing, which is a good sign, but that number is still very, very high. Yes, that's correct. And Of concern is that some age groups, we are still seeing uh, fairly rapid increases. And the age groups that are of highest concern right now with kids going back to school is our school-age children. So where are we? It's interesting, as we have gone through this pandemic, we've we've learned that uh, there is lagging case rates, uh, numbers based on different holidays and different events, and certainly we're coming into, as you touched on, school starting, we're just coming out of the Labor Day holiday where there's uh, ball games, uh, football games, and fairs and things of that nature where while people are asked to be vaccinated or show proof of negative tests, obviously uh, you can't police everybody. So is that where these rates continue to keep you concerned? Yes, it, it's all those uh, places that people are interacting. Uh, it's also, unfortunately, because with the Delta variant being such a transmissible form of COVID-19, even within households, we're seeing uh, a lot more spread. So if somebody in the house uh, does become infected, it's much more likely that other household members will get infected. and. What is household this? spread and go ahead. Well, sorry, yeah, I was going to say household spread and community spread is the big reason why we are seeing uh, so many cases in children. We are fortunately not seeing significant outbreaks or spread in schools, so we still know schools are a very safe place for kids to be. Meaning they're not being transmitted, but they're bringing it in. Which obviously, I know that's concern because, of course. Uh, those age groups, at least under 12, don't have the ability to get vaccinated. So what is it? Is it relationships, regular communication with schools? I'm guessing their hands are full trying to keep up with all of this. Oh, absolutely. And it, we are in constant uh, communication uh, with schools day to day and also uh, several weekly meetings with them to assist where we can. 
but again, you know, families can do the best job for schools if they really try to keep kids home when they're sick and really try to keep everybody in the household um, not getting COVID and not spreading it. And I know in our area, it's uh, the connection between vaccination rates and increasing numbers. Are we making progress in our county? I know ours have lagged throughout the vaccination period. Are we making some progress in that area? Yes, we we are making progress. Um, Over the last few weeks, we have seen uh, the percentages going up and going up more and more each week. So early in the summer, uh, we'd only change perhaps a half a percent per week. And now we're, you know, one and a half to two percent per week. So still small numbers, but a significant change for this area and a change for the better. And I know you're your comments uh, in recent weeks relative to this is because if people are just getting that vaccine, it takes a period of time, six weeks in, in some cases, for that to be fully protected. So, again, all those mitigation measures makes them all the more important. Absolutely. In fact, even when they're fully protected, they still need to uh, consider mitigation. Full protection really is protection from hospitalization um, or death from covid there's still a risk that people who are vaccinated uh, can get COVID. Um, it's not as high as if you're not vaccinated, uh, but even if you're vaccinated, pay attention. If you have symptoms uh, that could be COVID, get checked. If you were around somebody who had COVID, uh, get tested after three to five days just to make sure um, that you are still free of COVID. In the testing arena, is the positivity rate Positivity rate still fairly high, higher than you'd like? Yes. At our CBC West community test site, we are still seeing positivity rates uh, 23 to 25%. It got as high as 30 plus. Um, so, again, it's better, but we would really like to see it below 10%. Wow, so some a fair amount of work to go. There is some I did hear just as we were getting ready to come across the new or come onto our program today. A national story that the uh, FDA has provided emergency use authorization for a booster for people who have had Pfizer for certain populations. What do you know about that, and how soon would those uh, populations be able to start getting that third shot? Uh, that's great news. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, people can go out uh, tomorrow and, and look for the booster. Uh, after the FDA has given its um, full emergency use authorization, as they did today, uh, the next steps will be that CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will have to meet and make their recommendation for the booster. They are scheduled to meet, I believe, on September 29th um, in Washington, uh, those recommendations also have to be reviewed by the Western uh, PACT. So I would presume the earliest we'll see those vaccines available is late next week or, again, the very beginning of October. So this would be a booster dose for people age 65 or older or those at high risk either for exposure to COVID-19, so that would include healthcare workers, or at high risk for severe disease. And as I understand it, the recommendation is that the booster be given, uh, it'd either be six or eight months. I'll have to, that 
I'm not sure about, but it's not a booster dose, you know, a month after your second dose. It does need to be uh, several months after to ensure that you really get that good jump in your antibody and immune protection. Well, if you would, Dr. Person, just take maybe 15 or 20 seconds with a, a concluding comment from your role as the leader of public health in Benton and Franklin counties. I'd just ask that we all continue to you know, watch out for one another. Um, so make sure that uh, get vaccinated if you have that opportunity and you're eligible um, and everyone, no matter whether you're vaccinated, whether you've had COVID, whether you're young or old, uh, wear a mask when you're indoors or at an outdoor setting where there's a large number of people. Uh, watch that distance and, and please stay home if you're sick. So same old story, but it's a good story. So I'm going to just keep repeating it. Well, Dr. Amy Person, thanks so much for taking your, to- your time to be with us. Dr. Amy Person, the health officer for Benton and Franklin Counties. Take our first break of the evening. Back with more of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program. We move now to Dr. Brian York, who is an infectious disease specialist with Cadillac and who has been closely connected to all of the work that has been happening over in the Cadillac arena, both inside the hospital and uh, seeing patients as well relative to the COVID-19 situation that we're enduring. And Dr. York, we touched with Dr. Person the first half that we're at least starting to see a little headway on numbers going the right direction in the hospitalized world. And even in some cases, the case rates flattening a little bit, but they're still very high. I guess maybe give us your perspective on what you're seeing in the hospital at Cadillac. So uh, I've been watching the census for quite a while, and for a long time, uh, about a month ago, we had a space of about three weeks that we were always over 70 patients in the hospital with COVID, uh, up in the 80s a few times. The highest I saw was 86, uh, several days where it was about 84 or 85. And over the past week, it has trended downward. So the last three days, it's been about uh, 60 to 64 patients each day as as the running census. Uh, over the past weekend, we only had about eight admissions to the hospital, although there was a, you know, sometimes you see that and then there's, it's like water behind the dam. There's a big rush the next day. And we did have quite a few admits on Monday for COVID, but still uh, the numbers overall have come down. Um, I'm also seeing a shift uh, toward uh, more older patients over the age of 65 again. Uh, it's been more than half of our patients recently have been over the age of 65 uh, whereas just a month ago, uh, it was only about a third of the patients were over 65, and the rest were in that working age range of between the ages of 18 and, and 64. Uh, so we're seeing a shift back towards older patients. And in that age group, a lot of these folks are vaccinated, but they're getting to be, um, you know, six or eight months out from when they received their, their initial vaccination. And that appears to be making a difference. So the news that we're hearing just uh, breaking today that the FDA had approved the emergency use authorization for Pfizer boosters for that population, and hopefully the others won't be far behind? That's right. We, we don't know when we'll hear from the FDA about Moderna. 
uh, or even J&J, although there, there's recently been some news about uh, the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which has been, you know, in, in general, felt to be less effective, less protective than the others. Uh, they've actually shown that with a second shot, um, the, the protection with that vaccine appears to be just as good as with the others. So we may be learning more about that. But right now what we have is an expansion of the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine to allow a booster for anyone over the age of 65 uh, six months after they completed their initial series. And then for people, adults under the age of 65 who are at high risk of severe disease, uh, they can receive a booster. Um, and then you have your uh, institutional, what they, what they described as institutional employees. So people who work in areas where they are constantly exposed to the general public or have a high likelihood of being exposed uh, to COVID. And, and, you know, in their further discussion, the FDA suggested that that would include healthcare workers and people who work in grocery stores or other settings where they're essential workers working with the public. So I think we're still waiting for some final guidance on that. And I don't think they have indicated uh, that those booster shots can be given yet, but within the next week, I would expect we'll be seeing that. So it's coming out a little bit later than had been promised, uh, but people who were vaccinated initially with Pfizer uh, will soon be able to get boosters if they fall into any of those uh, categories. Can you address, if you would, where we are? Obviously, our area has been well chronicled. It's been behind on the number and the levels of vaccination rates, and you know it's been debated why that is so, but but I know the the concern with these so-called breakthrough cases gets some people thinking that, you know, makes them even more hesitant to get it in the first place. But if you could give us a, a, a quick primer on, on, on that argument about the, the continued need to get these vaccinations, regardless of, of if their efficacy is, is not as or it, it doesn't hold, I guess, is forever. Yeah, the, the need for boosters is not doesn't indicate that the vaccines don't work. It, it's common for vaccines to require multiple shots to get immunity, to, to, to get long-lasting immunity. Uh, and that includes many of the childhood vaccinations where they receive several of them. Uh, we have several vaccines that require boosters on an ongoing basis, including tetanus and pertussis. Uh, the hepatitis B vaccine requires a series of three doses. And so the, the, the idea that um, requiring boosters suggests they don't work um, it just doesn't doesn't hold water. It's a common uh, dosing strategy for vaccines, uh, and does not indicate failure. What we're what we're seeing is that the the people most likely to have breakthrough cases uh, who require hospitalization despite being fully vaccinated are people who are at very high risk and people over the age of 65, and that's borne out in what we're seeing locally uh, and who's being admitted to the hospital. So. This new recommendation, and I expect we're going to see more recommendations for boosters with the other vaccines, should help to address that and should certainly decrease the number of people being admitted. And even though we're talking about these breakthrough cases, I would stress that the the majority of patients in the hospital still are unvaccinated. And all of the patients in the ICU who've needed to go on the ventilator are unvaccinated. So, you know, that. and I also want to mention that folks who may not require hospitalization, uh, but, but who recover often have lingering symptoms, including lingering respiratory problems and ongoing uh, symptoms that require specialized care by pulmonologists. And so it's, it's not just a matter of staying out of the hospital. It's a matter of trying to stay healthy and prevent all of the potential complications that may occur from COVID. 
sadly, this has gone on for 18 months now. There's probably evidence from past patients that you've treated that you're seeing, as you say, some of these continuous and lingering symptoms or side effects. Uh, well, and, and I also uh, talk with pulmonologists in the community, folks who specialize in respiratory illnesses, and they are seeing a lot of this. People who um, have low oxygen levels that were never low enough to require hospitalization, but uh, also never really get back to normal. Uh, they see patients who were hospitalized and treated and um, go home with oxygen, and then you know months later still have not been able to get off oxygen, even though all of their other symptoms have gone away. And that could be life-changing. And so it's something that we need to you know, try to prevent. And I think the good news is that people can prevent those complications with vaccination. That's a choice people can make for themselves. If you get yourself vaccinated and follow the recommendations for getting boosters as often as it turns out that it's needed, I think, you know, over the next few years, we're going to know more and more about this, but getting yourself protected through vaccination can reduce the likelihood that you're going to have any of these long-term issues with COVID-19. And if you would take a minute, I know this term monoclonal antibodies is a, is a treatment in certain cases for people uh, who get the COVID virus. Talk a little bit about that from your perspective. And I know it's not widely available. And so my understanding, you need a physician referral to be able to get access to it, right? Yes. And so the monoclonal antibodies are essentially a way of giving you a boost uh, for your immune system, your immune system with antibodies that have been produced in a laboratory. Um, those antibodies work in a similar way to your own antibodies. It's just that they, they can be given to you to help fight the infection before your immune system is making its own antibodies. Uh, if you've been vaccinated, um, it's less likely that they're going to provide any benefit. Um, if people are unvaccinated and are there's a window of time after diagnosis uh, that if certain criteria are met, that's the period of time and the circumstances where the monoclonal antibodies may offer a benefit. Once the disease progresses to the point where you need to be in the hospital, there's no longer any benefit to giving the monoclonal antibodies. So it really is a narrow window of time, and it's something that, uh, that people need to, to seek um, through their doctor, uh, physicians in the community, primary care, uh, needs to be aware of what those criteria are so that people who are eligible and, and could potentially benefit are able to get referred and get that treatment. The downside to the monoclonal antibodies is that they, they don't provide any lasting immunity, uh, so they'll, they'll be out of your system in a few months and, and can prevent your immune system from forming a good response to the virus on its own, which means you may be just as susceptible to COVID three months down the road as you were the first time. And so it doesn't have a lasting benefit, which vaccination would. We have about uh, 30 seconds for you for you to capsulize kind of where your view is on everything at this point. Are you cautiously optimistic that we're maybe starting to make some progress back the right way? I think so. Um, you know, if you look at if you look at most countries that have had a wave with Delta, the, with the Delta variant, it seems to last a few months and then it starts to fade away. Um, we look like we're following a similar curve to that, but I, you know, I don't want to guess where we'll be in a month or two. The, the pattern that we're seeing in the hospital of, of having, you know, a number of older patients who may have waxing or sorry, may have a waning response to their vaccine at this point coming in with breakthrough infections. Uh, that's an ongoing issue that we're hoping to address with these boosters, but we're seeing less of the younger patients coming in. And uh, so I think 
that may suggest that, that we've, we've kind of seen the peak of this in terms of how it spread through uh, you know, the majority of our population, but we still need to focus on protecting those who are vulnerable uh, because clearly uh, the, the most vulnerable among us uh, continue to, to have issues with, with severe illness. Dr. Brian York, as always, thanks so much for taking some of your time to share with our listeners. Dr. Brian York, infectious diseases specialist at Catholic. Back with the second half of Catholic on Call right after this. listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program, Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. And certainly throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, that has taken center stage and much of the resources, much of the attention of everyone, and rightfully so. But one of the challenges that has been coming with that is that people get sick for other reasons. And that is one of the reasons that it's put such a strain on our healthcare system. And so tonight we wanted to shift gears and pivot a little bit away from COVID-19 and talk about the area of stroke and make sure we're aware and you're aware of all of the warning signs and symptoms of stroke and what actions we should take if we're encountering those symptoms. And we're so happy to have with us tonight a neurologist with Catholic, Dr. Wee-Wan Zhang, who has uh, been a Catholic neurologist for a number of years and I know has worked uh, in this area for a lot of her career here in the Tri-Cities. And Dr. Zhang, first, thank you for taking the time to be with us. But maybe an initial comment from your view, uh, has COVID made the work in the neurology world even more challenging because people are kind of uh, seeing COVID take center stage? Thanks, uh, Jim, for having me uh, in this program. Uh, to answer your questions, yes. Uh, with a um, recent, especially the recent surge of COVID and admission to the hospital, we definitely see the um, significant um, challenges, including a um, hospital capacity and uh, supply as well as workforce. So um, again, um, I do encourage people to receive a COVID, COVID vaccination since um, vaccine continues to be highly effective uh, at preventing hospitalization and at death. So uh, for the next few minutes, I will uh, discuss um, briefly about um, stroke and how uh, do stroke affect people and what to do when um, people experience any um, symptoms. Please do. Yes. So stroke is a term doctors use when a part of the brain is damaged because of a problem with the blood flow. Uh, There are uh, mainly two types of strokes. Uh, the first type of stroke is what we call ischemia stroke uh, due to lack of a blood flow, mostly from blood clots. This type of stroke happens more often than the second type of stroke, which is called hemorrhagic stroke, or bleeding into the brain from various reasons, such as leakage um, from the uncontrolled high blood pressure or some blood vessel anomaly, such as the cerebral aneurysm. So how do stroke affect people? It all depends on the location and the size of the stroke, as well as how quickly the stroke is treated. 
some people had a stroke without lasting effect. Unfortunately, others lose important brain function, such as partially paralyzed or speech difficulty. So there are an easy way to remember the signs of a stroke. The symptoms usually come on suddenly. Just think of the word fast, F-A-S-T. Each letter in the word stands for one of the things you should watch for. F, face. Does the person's face look uneven or droop on one side? A is arm. Does the person have weakness or numbness of one or two arms? S, speech. Is the person having trouble speaking? T is a time. If you notice any of these stroke signs, call for an ambulance. You need to you need to be fast. Time is the essence. The sooner treatment begins, the better the chances of recovery. Also, I- some experts. Uh, sorry. No, you go ahead. Okay. Also, some experts suggest thinking of a term. Be fast, adding two more symptoms to that list. E, it means balance. Is the person having a trouble walking? E is eye. I mean, e stands for eyes. Is the person having vision difficulty? So um, be fast is a simple uh, term. Uh, I hope everyone can remember that. And it's the symptoms you're talking about, it sounds like, as you describe the, this acronym, it sounds like it's obviously not only important for the person suffering those symptoms to be aware, but maybe their loved one or someone who's close to them, that they observe some of those symptoms on their, the person who is suffering them. You are absolutely right. So sometimes uh, the patient suffer from stroke may not be able to uh, uh, oriented enough to observe all these symptoms. So anyone uh, observe any of these symptoms that happen to anyone should report or call ambulance to get help. What kind of treatment is available for someone? So say I'm suffering those symptoms and I'm recognizing and I call the ambulance to come. What, might I, what kind of treatment might I see in order to get maximum, maximum recovery? As I mentioned earlier, um, time is the essence for stroke management or treatment. So the right treatment depends on what kind of a stroke uh, patients are suffering. And uh, the patient needs to get to the hospital very quickly to figure this out. Frequently in the emergency room department, the doctors will do tests such as CT scan or MRI of the brain. Uh, also, uh, frequently, uh, imaging uh, will be taken to look at the blood vessels. So if the strokes are due to blood clots, treatment may reopen clogged arteries if acting fast enough, and also treatment to prevent future strokes. If the strokes are due to bleeding in the brain, uh, having treatment, including possible surgery, that may reduce bleeding or minimize the brain damage if acting fast. So the um, ultimate answer is depends on what kind of a, a stroke. So acting fast is 
very, very important. And another element from where we live in our part of the country, we are, you know, obviously the Tri-Cities, it would be considered a fairly urban community, but also there are wonderful uh, rural parts of our region. And so many times the care that they need may require them to get to a larger facility. So does that make the challenge even more difficult to to deal with and make sure that people are acting on those because just of the geography and the time taken to get to treatment? Yes, you are right. So again, you know, time is a, a very important. The fact that you can get to our hospital and if we can do a uh, the test to, um, you know, figure out whether the patient can be treated at a local facility or the patient needs a uh, transfer to a tertiary center for uh, advanced treatment. It all a, uh, requires a acting fast. And the frequently we will do uh, some uh, initial tests in our local hospital and we'll coordinate with the large hospital for a um, you know speedy transportation if needed. And if you would, maybe one minute, I know uh, if you uh, the type of treatment available with this uh, the treatment team, they use technology such as telehealth, and there's somebody that's available that's a, that's a expert in stroke treatment 24-7, correct? Talk a little bit about that before you go. Okay. So we do have what we call a tele-stroke uh, services, uh, which, again, uh, we have experts uh, around the country to cover for twenty to cover twenty four seven a um, you know consultations if needed. So if a, a patient presents to the emergency room and with the signs suggestive of a stroke, and the patient needs to have a uh, immediate evaluation by experts to determine the treatment regimen. If we need to have certain medications to uh, dissolve the blood clots. This has to be done within a certain period of time. Yes, we definitely have this um, a, a superb a, a service. So maybe one concluding comment, if you will, there the, the the treatment is there. The team the team of experts is available around the clock. But a final comment, maybe that the people that might be suffering these strokes certainly it's that's all why you're saying important to recognize these symptoms. Yes, to recognize these symptoms. And not to wait uh, to see any symptoms will go away by itself. Uh, again, time is essence. If any sudden change of uh, you know those symptoms I mentioned earlier, just acting on that, uh, go to the hospital as soon as we can, you can. Very important advice from Dr. Wee-Wan Zhang, a neurologist with Cadillac, and we appreciate you so much for taking some time to share your expertise with us, uh, not only for folks here in the Tri-Cities, but all throughout the region of people listening on our radio tonight. Well, thanks to Dr. Zhang. We're going to continue our discussion on stroke awareness, and we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. We are continuing our discussion on the warning signs and symptoms of stroke and the things that we should all do if we're suffering them and the importance that we learned from Dr. Zhang, a neurologist with Cadillac, was to 
act on those symptoms and call 911 right away. We're going to continue our discussion with Kaylin Wyatt, who is a nurse by training and oversees the uh, the Stroke Education Outreach Program at Cadillac. But uh, before we get to that discussion, Kaylin is graciously joining us. She's actually uh, filling in in the ICU. She's a nurse by training, but uh, she is helping. Uh, you've probably been aware that this has placed tremendous strain on the staff throughout the healthcare system, and Cadillac is no exception. And so Kaylin is uh, working in the intensive care unit as we speak tonight and joining us during her break. So the work is never done, is it? No, it isn't. And and I do have to give a shout-out to all my fellow caregivers here that have also helped in um, contributing to the need of, of uh, supporting our staff here in the ICU. We actually had lunch delivered today from Jimmy John, so we have members of the community that are helping us out as much as they can. And um, it's nice to kind of feel people's arms wrap around you while you're while you're trying to do some good work for people that really need it. Obviously, you're a nurse as a calling, but uh, as you're stepping into this role in the ICU that has, hasn't been your area of focus, what's your observation as you walk and see your colleagues uh, working who have been at this a long time in the ICU? Uh, there are really some amazing people that I have the privilege of working with that are here in the ICU. Um, they do great things every day to help support the families that are here to to support those um, patients and and um, COVID is real. I guess that's one thing that I can say definitely is real. Um, we take care of a lot of people here that have been positive with COVID and are suffering from those symptoms. And um, I can just say that the the caregivers here treat every patient graciously, treat them very well, and do the best that they can with everyone that we have come through the doors. So they're really doing a great job here. All right, now on to the topic at hand. And we just had Dr. Zhang, a neurologist with Cadillac, talking and providing some really important advice on all of these uh, stroke signs and symptoms. And we got educated on the acronym Be Fast, and and um, I know that's a, a an area where you're kind of your so-called day job. But from your view, is mm-hmm. is COVID impacted people acting on these symptoms just because they're a little worried and they've been kind of COVID has taken center stage and people haven't acted on those, or, or are we are we noticing that at all? You know, that's a, a really great question. Early on, when COVID first began in the community and we had that initial uptick, we saw a significant decrease in 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 all across the board of people going to the emergency department, going to um, contact EMS and um, looking for emergent care. And um, as the as things have stabilized a little bit, we definitely saw those numbers increase. We saw our ICU or you know other areas become overloaded with people coming in because of COVID symptoms. And we've seen our numbers with stroke continue to to rise. Um, and, uh, you know, I can definitely say that, that people calling EMS, that is one of the number one things that we try to encourage community um, uh, members to do first is not always, it's not a, the best thing to do to drive yourself to the emergency department to be checked out for a stroke. You may not feel like it's something that's emergent um, if you have one of one of the few symptoms that show up, but it truly is a medical emergency, and emergency services can help you with some of those things by calling ahead to the um, emergency department and preparing 
the imaging area for us to get a brain scan done or, or do other things. It's just really important for us to get that care as quickly as possible. I think you told so me that... EMS is important. I was going to say, I think you told me that the saying time is brain, meaning that the longer you wait, uh, the more impact yeah. it can have on, t- uh, on your, your brain activity and your physical activity. Yeah, we, um, so there was an article at one point, it's like 1.9 million brain cells, neurons are killed off every minute that you deprive it of oxygen. And so if you think about that, time is brain. It's literally, you're stopping that oxygen delivery to your brain tissue and, and we need to get that restored as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, there is only, a, you know, there's a limited number of ways that we can do that. So, um, the hospital is the number one location for you to get that help when you have a stroke. And you touched on it, but maybe elaborate a little more on the point of people that think, oh, I can get there faster if someone drives me. But the fact that, mm-hmm. as you touched on, the, the EMS crews are a vital piece of this puzzle and that they can initiate treatment from your home or wherever you're stricken. Yeah, they have means of actually helping to control things like blood pressure. They can help um, definitely in identifying the, the the stroke itself and whether or not if you're on the on the fence, you're not really sure if numbness, um, weakness, dizziness, um, blurred vision. There's there's some of these signs and symptoms that can be a little confusing when they first present. But if they're a new onset, calling emergency services and having them evaluate you right away can then set you up for that visit at the hospital. They'll call ahead. That gives us that um, that time to prepare to have a emergency services evaluated individual come to the emergency room. They don't have to go through the waiting room and get triaged through that process. And right now we know that we have really long waiting times in the emergency department. So, you know, we don't want somebody to get slowed down by that um, unfortunate event where we're we're just, we have a lot of people coming in right now. So calling emergency services, getting the help out in the field, getting an evaluation done, they call ahead to the emergency department to get you the help that you need and get them prepared for that um, ambulance arrival. And if you would, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, maybe recap that little acronym that Dr. Zhang talked about, BFAST. Oh, yeah, BFAST. So BFAST, that acronym has been around for a while. American Heart Association and Stroke Association has told us um, for a long time focus on that, and those are the signs and symptoms of stroke that you should be calling emergency services for. Um, B is for balance, so some instability. Dizziness kind of falls into that category, too. Um, E is eyes, if you have loss of vision or blurred vision in one or both of your eyes. Um, S is, or sorry, F is for uh, face, so facial droop. Um, A is arms or legs, so if you have some drift or... um, numbness tingling in one or one side or the other usually it's one side or another um, and then speech speech is um, difficulty with slurred speech or um, understanding speech even and t is for time so that's just calling emergency services and getting the help as quick as you can well kayla and wyatt thanks for pulling double duty for us not only providing us <laughs> valuable stroke information and warning signs and symptoms but the work you're doing supporting the team at cadillac uh, fighting the COVID fight on an ongoing basis. Kaylin Wyatt, Catholic thank Regional you, Medical Center, and thank you to all of our guests this evening. We appreciate it, and we'll talk again next week.